My son, many years ago, it was the middle of the night, it was dark, I heard him crying in his room, he was younger, he's 12 now, he was probably 6 or 7 then. And so like any good parent, I left my bed and walked down the hallway and I heard him you know, softly crying. And I stepped up the ladder of his bunk bed and I said, hey bud, I said, how are you doing, what's going on? And he said, daddy, my legs hurt so bad. And I realized at that moment that what my son was experiencing was growing pains. And I said, bud, you want to grow, don't you? And the tears were running down his face. And he said, yeah, dad, I, I want to grow. You see, my son, not all that much different than myself, is a little vertically challenged. And uh, I said, you want to grow? Yeah, dad, I just, I just want to grow. You know, he wants to play baseball. That's his thing, you know. He wants to play baseball, become a professional baseball player for the Cardinals. And then he wants to become a pastor, which I think would make a great gig. So it's fine with me, whatever the Lord may do. I said, Bud, you can't grow unless there's pain. He didn't like that answer, and I didn't like giving that answer as a father. I wish I could have touched him at that moment and taken all the pain from his life, but I just explained to him what was going on, and I prayed for him that night, and I walked down the hallway, and it's funny how the Father will often have a meeting with us as well, the Heavenly Father. You see, as a father, I had met with my son that night, and the Father pulled me aside in the hallway, and he said, Lord, You've been praying and asking and desiring to grow as a man of God. And for this ministry here in O'Fallon, Missouri, you've been praying for it to grow. But you've been complaining about the pain. Lauren, you can't grow unless there's pain. Lauren, the bumps are what you climb on, as Warren Wearsby so well wrote one time. And as I think about the present situation that you guys face as a fellowship. And as my wife and I have been praying diligently and faithfully for you every night, not knowing what God is going to do, knowing where our heart is at, knowing what our heart is for, but completely submitted and surrendered to the will of God, His will be done. The only thing that is certain is uncertainty, <laughs> really. For it says, who knows the mind of the Lord? right? Who is a counselor to the Lord? All I know is he's faithful and true. He's a rock, a sure rock. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the author and he's the what gang? He's the finisher of our faith. He's not the author and uh, never got finished with you. <laughs> left you on the shelf. Oh, I forgot about you or whatever it might be. No, he's the author and the finisher. So do not worry, my friends, about the stirrings that God is doing. Paul would write to the Philippians. He would say, he who began a good work in you will be what? He will be faithful to complete it. In Jeremiah 29, 11, it says, the thoughts that the Lord thinks towards you are of good and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And when our pastor stands before us on a Sunday morning and he tells us that God has been working and instilling and stirring his heart and that he'll be moving on, we feel as if our heart has just been ripped out of our chest. Because we love him dearly, don't we? I've been in that place before. Many years ago, there was a transition at Calvary Chapel, Salem. But you know what? It's in those times that we realize that this is his church, right? This is his church, the church that belongs to the Lord. He said that he would build his church, right? We belong to him. And so we can just rest in the unwavering, unshakable faithfulness of God, even in the seismic upheavings of life's inconveniences. 
Obstacles, my friends, are just opportunities for the Lord. Amen. And so turn in your Bible this morning to the 20th chapter here in the book of Joshua, as it is an incredible privilege to stand where normally Ryan stands on a Sunday morning, and I stand here sober and I stand here humble because I know that he does not surrender this place lightly. Before I say another word or take another step this morning, let's pray. And so, God, this morning, I come before you. We come before you, God, as a family and as a fellowship, as the body of Christ. And we are part of that body. And, God, we do not know what the future holds, but we do know who holds the future. And that is you. And now, God, after this incredible time of worship this morning where we sang of your, your worthiness and your holiness and, and that it's all about you as we've had an opportunity to turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. God, I pray now that we would see his face here in Scripture this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would transform our eyes into ears Lord, our ears into eyes that we would see and and hear and take to heart that which you desire to say to us. God, that like Elijah, we would hear your still, small voice and we'd say, there is my God speaking to me again. Because no doubt, Lord, I have friends and family here this morning that are hungry and haven't heard your voice in a long time. And so, God, may your voice go forth this morning like refreshing living waters. In the wonderful name of Jesus, and and everyone said, Amen. Amen. And so follow along this morning as we arrive here in the 20th chapter of the book of Joshua, beginning with verse 1. Now the Lord also spoke to Joshua. And isn't it wonderful? And isn't it great? And isn't it glorious when God speaks to you? Does it not thrill you like it does me? When you open your Bible and suddenly God is speaking you again, and no doubt Joshua felt that, was thrilled by that. Oh God, you're speaking to me again. And God spoke to Joshua, verse 1. And verse 2, he said, Now, Joshua, what I want you to do is I want you to speak to the children of Israel, saying, Now, appoint out for you cities of refuge, whereof I have spoken unto by the hand of Moses. This is something that God had spoken of before. This was not new news unto Joshua nor to Moses. This was a promise of God coming to fruition. That the slayer, verse 3, that is the manslayer, that person that kills somebody, their, their neighbor, a friend, an acquaintance, it happens accidentally, it happens unintentionally, they do it as it says here in the King James, unaware, unwittingly, now they may flee to one of these cities of refuge spoken of in verse 1. They need to run. That they might find refuge there, verse 3, from the avenger of blood. And when he does flee to one of these cities, verse 4, he shall stand there at the entrance of the city, at the gate of the city, where the elders would gather in those days historically, and he will tell his tale, his story. He will give his testimony. He will bear his witness to them. He will declare his cause in the ears of the elders of that city, why he's there, why he's on the run why he's under the gun, why life right now for him is not fun at all. He's a fugitive. Here's why I'm here. And they shall take him into the city, this city of refuge unto themselves, and they will give him a place that he might reside there, that he might dwell among these elders of the city of refuge and the inhabitants and the citizens. And if the avenger, verse 5, of blood pursues after him, then they shall not deliver this fugitive 
into the slayer's hands. He may stand outside this one seeking vengeance and retribution. You killed my brother, I'm taking your life too. Give me that man. And they would stand on the, the bulwarks of that city and say, no, he's found sanctuary. He has found refuge. He's found safety. He's fleed here even as God has appointed. If the slayer pursues after him, they will not deliver him into his hand. Because he smote or killed his neighbor accidentally. He didn't hate him before time. It wasn't planned. It wasn't premeditated murder. It was accidental. And verse 6, he will dwell in that city. He will become a resident. He will reside in that city until he stands before the congregation of judgment, until an official trial and court can be had and placed together and exercised. And we are told in verse 6 that he will stay there and remain there until the death of the high priest that is serving and functioning in that position in those days. But upon the death of that high priest, we read in verse 6, then shall the slayer return and come unto his own city. That is, he is freed. This fugitive is freed upon the death of the high priest. And he is forgiven. And he can go back to his own city, it says. And back to his own house, which he had to flee so many years ago. And unto the city from where he has fled. Gang, you need to understand the scenario. You need to catch where we are at in Scripture at this point. You need to take the temperature, so to say, of things in Israel at this point in their history. The land which God has promised them, it's been given to them. It has been divided. It has been dealt. Inheritances have been received by the, as you know them, 12 tribes of Israel. Those sons of Jacob later to become Israel, a man governed by God. We've seen two and a half of the tribes choose their settlement east of the Jordan River there in the Transjordian Plain. They were cattlemen. They were ranchers. And those fields of Moab were fertile. And they chose to settle there because they thought we can carve out a great living in this place. It's a great place to raise cattle. Too bad they didn't take into consideration that it was a terrible place to raise kids. Surrounded by idolatry and immorality and by the enemy, and of course, Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh, they were the first to fall. They were the first to become enslaved. But these remaining nine and a half tribes that resided west of the Jordan River, Judah and Simeon and Benjamin and Dan, who resided there in the south, and Ephraim and the other half-tribe of Manasseh and Issachar and Zebulun and Asher and Naphtali, who resided there to the north, for them... It was an exciting time. There was, there was a feverish pitch in the air, like Christmas morning when you're a kid, you know. The night before, I mean, come on, did any of us really sleep the night before Christmas? When we were six, seven, eight years old, and oh, you, you're just, I can't sleep. My brother and my sister, we would all stay in the same room that night because we couldn't sleep couldn't wait for Christmas morning to come. Three o'clock in the morning, we're knocking on the door. Is it time yet? No, go back to bed, my dad would say. We're still sleeping. Then why are you talking? We think you're awake. No, I'm asleep. Go back to bed. Oh, man. Your stomach would be in knots. You just wanted to dive in. You just wanted to get in there. It was that same kind of Anxious anticipation, the same temperature was there in Israel at this time. I mean, these tribes, they'd been given in a scroll their boundaries and their borders, and they're chomping at the bit, pulling at the reins, ready to go claim that which God had for them. I must confess to you this morning, I'm that kind of guy. I don't have a whole lot of patience 
when I'm given a task or when I see that there's a possibility, I'm just waiting for God to say, go. I'm like a a round in the chamber. Just pull the trigger, God, and let me fly. The problem is, is God is still setting his sights while while I'm waiting, you know. Some of us know that feeling. That feeling of just wanting to get things going, get on the road, get to work, get some things done. And that is where Israel is at this point. Chapter 20 of Joshua, it's a threshold, like in a house. And they're like, when do we get to come in? But before they get busy claiming and colonizing and cultivating and constructing and homesteading, before they hurry off with this unbridled excitement, God says, wait, isn't that like our God? Oh, by the way, one more thing. Oh, really? Okay. One more thing. There's one more very important order of business to attend to, for God had made a promise back in Exodus chapter 21. And God is, isn't he, the ultimate promise keeper? I never joined that movement because I wanted to start my own movement called Promise Breakers. (laughs) In the sense that I couldn't keep promises, it seemed. But I have found one who is a promise keeper. Ultimately, has never let me down, and that is God. And that is what he is doing for Israel here. He is the ultimate promise keeper. Oh, by the way, there's one more promise. Remember what I told you back in Exodus 21, that I'm going to appoint for you a place to run, a place to to flee. In Numbers 35, he defines it and expounds upon it for them. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, he reiterates it to them again. You know when God makes mention of something four times in the first five books of his word? (laughs) Probably is important. (laughs) As I said, first service, it only takes God hitting me in the head with the two by four of his word three, four, or five times before I finally get the point. Okay, all right. I get it. I understand, Lord. And before us this morning is God fulfilling a promise. God putting feet upon a promise. He places something that he had promised Israel, a place to flee for the fugitive. And it is, as we read in Joshua chapter 20, these cities of refuge. Historically, they were a place for the manslayer, manslaughter, accidental death, for him to flee and to find protection, verse 3. Let me see if I can put you in their Birkenstocks this morning, in their Tevas, their sandals. It would be like this. In these days and times... You were carving out a life for yourself. You were, you were a pilgrim, man. You were a homesteader. And you would reach your land and you would have to fall timber. You would have to move rocks. You would have to pull stumps. You would be a sodbuster. Hey, homesteading's tough work, isn't it? It's not easy work, but it's also not safe work. And imagine, here's the scene. Your neighbor says, hey, Lord, I know you're cutting timber today. So why don't I lend you the hand of my 12, 13-year-old son? He's strapping. He's able. He's available. Why don't you take him out into the woods today while you're cutting timber? I don't need him. Hey, amen. All right. I could use the hand. And we go out there, sunny, beautiful day. Everything is going great. We're really making progress. When suddenly, as I'm chopping away at a tree, it begins to splinter. And it begins to to turn. And I realize at that moment, this tree is not going where I wanted to to go. Chaos is about to erupt. And the adrenaline fills your veins, and your heart begins to race, and you run for cover. Look out! As branches break... And the massive timber splinters and spins and falls. And then there's silence suddenly. And when the dust settles, you look around. And you shout out your neighbor's son's name. 
And the feeling of relief that you once had is now turned to grief because silence is the only thing that answers back. And you race through the limbs and through the brush and you look with fear, your eyes racing, and you find him buried beneath the limbs and the timber of that tree. And your life has been changed forever. And that family's life has been changed forever. You've taken a life accidentally, unintentionally, but in these days, you are now a fugitive. That is what these cities were for. For the accidental, unintentional taking of a life. At that moment, you had to leave all to run to one of these cities. And you would arrive at the gate, verse 4, and you would plead your case to the elders that the death which you brought about was not intended, it was accidental, it wasn't premeditated, it wasn't planned. Your chest heaving. And if the elders of that city believed there was truth in your words and in your story, they would grant you clemency. They would allow you to stay in that city, verse 6, until a formal trial could be put together. And there in this city, you would be safe from what is called the avenger. Verse 3, verse 6, the avenger of blood. This would be some member of that family that would take the law into their own hands. You see, in these days, these times, this culture, it was eye for an eye. It was tooth for a tooth. It was life for a life. Gang, these were brutal and bloody days. Vengeance and vendetta ruled the land like Don Corleone. Families were splintered and families were fractured. And grudges were held. Grudges became feuds. And many innocent people died. And so here God does something that is cross-culture. He contrasts the culture. He does something different. That in these cities, He intervenes and He provides. That here in one of these cities, a person who had taken the life of another accidentally could find safe harbor from the hand of the avenger, the one that wanted them dead, the one that wanted satiation and satisfaction and retribution and revenge. And after the formal trial, if it was indeed determined that the death was accidental, they would allow you to stay. You could abide in the city as long as the high priest serving at that time was alive. Verse 6. While he was living, you could abide in that city. And then we read in verse 6 that after his death, something changed. You were set free. Upon his death, you were forgiven. Upon his death, you were granted exoneration and liberation. You were truly made free and forgiven, able to go home. Now, this morning I sat at the breakfast bar there at Dave's house. It's been good staying there. We stayed up late last night just sitting there fellowshipping. Early this morning sharing a cup of coffee, fellowshipping. Thank you very much. (laughs) I appreciate it. I said, Dave, you know I heard someone say once that this Bible here, this book before us this morning that you prayerfully have with you, I heard one say, this is a hymn book. Not H-Y-M-N, not a hymnal, but a hymn book, H-I-M. May I share that with you this morning? This is a hymn book. It's all about Him. It's all about the Lord. It's all about Jesus, our Savior. From Genesis to Revelation, it's God's message of salvation. It's not history. It's His story. It's his story for you. His story for me. And it's a story of redemption. Revealed and unfolded from chapter to chapter and page to page from Genesis to Revelation. Revealing his heart to reconcile and restore humanity 
back to himself. The fellowship and friendship that he had after creating man in the garden was shattered when Adam sinned. I remember hearing someone else say one time that Adam was the original and ultimate Adam bomb. Because he bombed out in the garden. And you and I have been feeling the fallout ever since. That is, this disease called sin has infected humanity and God knows it. And as soon as Adam sinned, God moved. And before the foundations of the earth, the lamb was slain. God had a plan of redemption all along. It's a hymn book. You need to read it through that lens. Even Jesus himself says this book is a hymn book as he's talking there with the Jews in John chapter 5. It's a nice way John has of saying with the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the priests, and the scribes. And Jesus was speaking with them and he says, You search the scriptures and you think that your knowledge of them, for you Think in them you have eternal life and the fact that you just know them. But these are they which testify of me. Really? Wow. Now you have to understand something. When Jesus was speaking with these guys, he was referring not to the Bible that you have today and I have today, but he was referring to the book of Moses, Genesis, Exodus. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And Jesus looks at him and he says, those books testify of me. Now, I don't think any of us here this morning make a habit of thinking of the Pentateuch as the Old Testament Gospels. But they are. And Jesus says so. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, speaking, quoting Jesus prophetically, he says, Lo, I come. And the volume of the book, it is written of me to do thy will, O God. This book before us this morning is all about him, H-I-M. It's all about Jesus. As we sang this morning so, so powerfully, so applicably to where we find ourselves in the word this morning, O Jesus, be the center Be the center of everything. Be the center of my life. Be the center of my vision. This book is about him. So if this book is about him, then guys, folks, don't you think we should always be looking for him in it? That we should come with the attitude of those Greeks that came to Jesus and they said, Sir, to the disciples, Sirs, we wish to see Jesus. Let me share with you this morning, that is the best prayer that you can have. I used to think the best prayer is, Lord, fix my marriage. Lord, fix my ministry. Lord, fix my job. Lord, fix my family. Lord, fix my kids. And there's nothing wrong with bringing and casting our cares upon the Lord for he cares for us, right? That's what Peter says. Nothing wrong with those things. But I suggest to you that there should be something at the top of our prayer list. I want to see Jesus because he's my all in all. He's my everything. My life hinges upon him, is wrapped up in him. Holy Spirit, help me see Jesus as I read devotionally, as we enjoy God's word together like this this morning corporately. Because here's the beauty. What makes seeing our Savior in the scriptures so powerful and pivotal when we see him, even as Stuart prayed, When we see him, we shall become like him. I think John, in his epistle, 1 John, you know these verses. Let me just share them with you this morning from 1 John chapter 3. I think John alludes to this, that when we see him, we shall be like him. He says, Beloved, now we are the sons of God. It doesn't yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, when he is revealed, when we see him, We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. When we see him, we shall be like him. Now, yes, 
I know in context, I know John is speaking of that day when we will be with him in his presence. I know John is speaking of a future place and a future time, literally face to face with the Lord. I know that. But for me personally, God uses it to teach me something practically and presently as well. And that is this, when Jesus is revealed to me in his word, when I see him and I sit before him and I gaze upon him, he transforms me and he conforms me into his image, as it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, that we've been predestined to be conformed into the image of who? Jesus Christ, his son. In essence, God is saying, and he's looking, here, I'll put it in layman's terms for you this morning. God is looking at you and he looks at me and he says, you know what? I want you to be a chip off the old block. I learned this not too long ago. Well, actually now, long ago. Time flies when you're having fun. But uh, I was out in the garage when my kids were younger. Can't recall exactly what I was doing. The honeydew list was long that day. God bless my wife. Had the table saw out, router out, some other tools. Was doing something. And my son came out of the laundry room door which entered into the garage and he had gotten for himself one of those little kid aprons from Lowe's, you know, that makes him feel like a big boy. And he had plastic goggles on and he had little plastic tools all in his, you know, little apron and he came out into the garage and he grabbed some scrap wood from the pile and he began to pretend to put something together. Dad was working. He was going to work too. And the moment got particularly touching. When I turned off the table saw and I looked at him, I said, hey, bud, what you doing? He said, Dad, look at me. I'm you. (laughs) I'm you. I'm like you. I share that with you this morning because... I didn't go in the house and sit my son down and say, now Barrett, listen, today I want you to be like me. So we're going to go down into the basement. We're going to grab your little tykes tools. We're going to grab that little Lowe's apron. We're going to put it on you and your goggles as well. And we're going to go out into the garage and and you're going to be like me. No. He did it naturally, innately. Why? Because he loves the Father. And he was always looking at his dad. And the same has been true of my daughter as well. My children watch me. And the folks in our fellowship, they see me in the mannerisms, in the vocabulary of my children. You know why? Not because I sit my children down and I teach them to be like me. It's because they're around me all the time and it just rubs off. They just see me. They just watch me. And you know why they watch me? They watch me because they love me. And they want to be like Dad. Isn't that a great prayer? Is that your prayer this morning? Concerning the Father, concerning Jesus Christ. Lord, I love you. When you love him, you look for him. That's what Paul says to a young Timothy there in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Timothy was... Paul's chip off the old block. His son in the faith, remember, is protege, young Pastor Timothy. And in 2 Timothy, Paul is near the end of his life. He knows that he's facing death, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. He's struggling. He wants to be with the Lord. But then he says something interesting to Timothy. He says, Timothy, I know there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me at that day and not to me only but unto all them also that what? Love his appearing. There is a crown of righteousness laid up for those who love what? His appearing. And yes, that's speaking of the day when we We'll see him when he appears, when we will stand before him, when we will experience that fullness of joy that is in the Lord and the right hand where there's pleasures forevermore, Psalm 1611. Yes, it's speaking of that. But you know what? Do you love his appearing? 
on a Tuesday morning when you got your Cheerios there in a bowl and you got your coffee out or whatever it is and you crack open the word and you sit down and you're reading and suddenly the Holy Spirit opens your eyes and you see your Savior in a way like never before and you say, awesome. Wow. That's my Jesus. That's my Savior. That's my Redeemer. That's my refuge, you see. And that's my prayer this morning. I would consider it a terrible failure if you left this morning talking about how great the message was or what a wonderful time you had. Or if my name was on your lips when you left this morning, I would, I would fail. It would be tragedy. But if you leave this morning seeing Jesus and his name on your lips, and your love for him stoked up and stirred up, then I give God praise and glory, because that's my prayer. Let the Spirit open your eyes to this word, to Joshua chapter 20 this morning before us, and let us see Jesus in this chapter, these verses. And in seeing him, our lives will be made a little more like his, that you would be his kids coming out with your apron and your tools and your goggles saying, Dad, look at me. I'm like you, you see. So buckle in. And if you're taking notes this morning, write this down. Number one, that from Joshua chapter 20, it springs forward and it speaks forward to the fact that you and I need to realize that Jesus is our refuge. Realize that he, Jesus, is our refuge. Whether you're here this morning, believer or not, Jesus is our refuge. Realize that. That just as God gave Israel these cities of refuge, he has given himself to you and I as a refuge. Israel had cities of refuge. You and I as a savior, as a refuge. Psalm 46. You probably know it. You may not know that it's Psalm 46, but I'm sure you've sung a song with these lyrics before. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. (laughs) The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Familiar psalm, isn't it? And then it ends with the word Selah. That's an interesting word, Selah. It's actually a musical term. It's a place in the psalm where the musicians just play musically. There are no words. It's like a bridge. It's a break. And it's intended for you to think about what has just been sung or what has just been said. It means to stop and to meditate upon something. And so when it says, Selah, it's saying stop and meditate and think about The fact that God is your refuge and your strength. That he is with you. Think about that. In present day terms, we might say it means pause. It's the pause button. Like on your DVD player. Or on your iPod. You know? What happens when the phone rings? You hit pause So you can take the call. And maybe this morning what God is saying to you and I, he's saying, I'm trying to call you. Will you hit pause? Because what I'm trying to say to you is that I'm your refuge in this situation. And maybe that's what God wants you to do this morning. Maybe that's what God is saying to me. He's saying, Lauren, you need to hit pause. You've been freaking out. (laughs) And what you need to do is chill out. You need to hit pause and you need to meditate upon the fact that I am your refuge and I am your strength and a very present help in time of trouble and that I am with you. Maybe you've been fearful, freaking out, fretting about something or some situation and you've completely forgotten, not intentionally, we all do it, who your refuge is. And we all do it. I do it. When things in the ministry heat up, And I'm stressing, man. What do I do? I say, I'm checking out. I'm going fishing. I'm going hunting or whatever it is. And instead of finding refuge in the Lord, I recreate. I recreate instead of refuge in the Lord. And I'm guilty of it. And I come back from those times. Yes, maybe 
having had a good time, but I wonder why I don't feel rested and I don't feel safe and I don't feel satisfied because there is no greater refuge than him. Folks, Selah. Hit pause. Stop and see that God is your refuge. Notice there in Psalm 46, the writer, he says, God is our refuge and he is with us. So he puts the two together. God, our refuge, is with us. God with us. God with us. Does that sound familiar? It should. It's very familiar. Remember Joseph there in Matthew chapter 1. He's wrestling. He's struggling. Mary comes to him, says, I'm pregnant. And he knows it's not his. And he had a mind to put her away privately. And it's, it's a fearful thing when the Lord visits you in your dreams. And the Lord comes and explains what's going on, that it's a work of the Lord. It's the plan of redemption. And then God says something very interesting to Joseph. He says, and they shall call his name, that is Jesus' name, what? Emmanuel, meaning what? God with us. Psalm 46.1 says, God with us equals refuge. Matthew chapter 1 verse 23 says, and you shall call his name God with us. Connect the dots. Put the pieces together. The real refuge is Jesus. God with us. Jesus said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. John said, And he dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, full of grace and full of truth. God with us. We need to realize that because the enemy and life and situations and circumstances are so good at taking our eyes off of Jesus, aren't they? And like Peter, when he took his eyes off of Jesus in the storm, walking on water, remember? We all take our eyes off the Lord and we begin to sink into a sea of worry and depression Hey, Jesus is your refuge. If that's all that you hear this morning, I think that's a good word. But a refuge from what? What is he really a refuge from? Yes, he is a refuge in the midst of trial and tribulation. But remember here in this scene before us, these cities were a refuge for the person fleeing one thing and one thing only. Death. These cities of refuge were for the person that was trying to escape death. There was an avenger that was hunting them like a hound of dogs and wanted to see them die. This avenger wanted them dead and they were as good as dead unless they could get to one of these cities. And so here I have a fugitive in Joshua chapter 20 who has one thing chasing him, death. And there's only one place where he can escape death in the refuge. Hmm. You know, don't we have death chasing us as well? Isn't there an avenger out there that is after us, chasing us? And why is that? Because all have sinned. And fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Guys, there is one thing, great thing, that we need refuge from. Not the stresses of life. Not the worries of work. But one thing, the greatest thing. Refuge from the wages of sin. Because that's the one thing that will do you in eternally. Not only death physically, yes, death physically entered in at that time, but death spiritually, and you need to understand what spiritual death is. Spiritual death is eternal separation from God. And I know that Jesus teaches on hell more than a lot of things in Scripture, and he defines it as darkness and gnashing and weeping of teeth and and fire and, and burning and things like that. But you know what? You know what real hell is, is to stand before God on judgment day and for him to say, you need to leave. That's hell. To realize at that moment, God is real. To taste for a moment his presence and glory and have him say, I'm sorry. 
you must leave because I'm holy. And you did not receive the salvation that I offered through my son. Friends, sin is not something to to take lightly, not something to play around with. It only brings death. You know, this morning in first service, I, I shared a poem that I usually keep in my Bible. I pulled it out and I don't know where it went. I'll find it. It's important to me. <laughs> but it basically says something to this effect. Sin does not serve well as a gardener of the soul. It takes all that is beautiful and it makes it ugly. It takes all that is high and it makes it low. Sin is not a gate, but it is a grave. And so often the enemy is good at getting us to believe that temptation, whether it's lust or whether it's pride or selfishness, it's a gateway to satisfying my flesh. And we step through the gate of temptation right into a six-foot grave. Can I encourage you this morning, if you're here and you've been flirting with temptation and you've been playing around with sin and thinking what you're doing and where you're going is no big deal whatever it might be, thinking you are or will get away with it. Listen, sin is not a playground. It's a minefield. And no one comes through the minefield of sin unscathed. It's only a matter of time before things will blow up. Well, Lord, that's great and all. But what do I do? Maybe you're sitting here this morning, maybe a Christian, a child of God, maybe not, I don't know, and sin has been hounding you. You've been feeling guilty, convicted, condemned, I don't know. You felt the haunt of the Holy Spirit. And that is because God loves you. And you've been feeling the conviction of His Spirit. His hand is on your heart, even as David said, God, your hand was upon me day and night. After his sin with Bathsheba, remember. Here's what we do, number two. Not only do I need to realize that Jesus is my refuge, number two, run to him who is our refuge. Because listen, realization alone doesn't save a person. You gotta run to him. I could stand out the city of refuge and say, there's the city of refuge, there it is right there. But if I stand outside of it and I never run into it, who's gonna get me? The avenger. I have to run to him. This person here had only one choice. Run. At this moment, they had to drop all, leave all, run with all their strength and all their breath to one of these cities. You know, it's interesting. God in his providence, he placed three of these cities in the west and three of these cities in the east on the opposite sides of the Jordan River. So no river, no lake, No mountain would ever obstruct the way, and according to Jewish tradition, the roads that led to these cities were always kept in the best of condition. They were the clearest, they were the straightest. Crossroads were all well marked by signs that read refuge, 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 and runners were actually stationed along the way of these roads to to help guide fugitives to safety. They would say, there is refuge, there is refuge, keep Running And so too, in times of conviction, times of condemnation, we need to run to him who is our refuge. Maybe you've never learned the difference between conviction and condemnation. Conviction is of the Holy Spirit. Conviction says you need to go to God right now, but condemnation is of the enemy. Condemnation says this, you can't go to God, you need to run away from God. Because he's not going to forgive you. And he's not going to save you. You're just... You're too awful. You're too much of a failure. You're too disobedient. You're too rebellious. Yes, Jesus died for everybody on the cross but you. That's condemnation, and that's a lie. It's a lie of the enemy. He doesn't want you falling into the arms of the Savior. The writer of Hebrews, I think, has these cities in mind here in chapter 6 when he says this. He says that by two immutable things, that is, No argument. (laughs) In which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong comfort who have fled to refuge or for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. What is that hope? 
we have as an anchor of the soul, sure, steadfast, entering into the veil, the forerunner is for us entered. And who is that? Jesus, he says. The writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is the refuge that we need to flee to. Listen, this morning, this whole idea that these cities of refuge point forward and are a picture of Jesus Christ, it's not my idea. So stop being impressed, I guess. <laughs> There's an old saying that says, if, if it's new, it's probably not true. And if it's true, then it's probably not new. <laughs> And this is true, but it's not new because the writer of Hebrews, he's the one that says, look at those cities of refuge because they speak of a greater refuge. Of course, many of us have found refuge. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are where? Where, gang, this morning? In, in Christ Jesus. And once there, what do we do? We confess, we come clean. Another promise we all know so well. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, like here, what would this individual do? They would arrive at the gate, all their breath, all their strength spent, they would fall and they would tell their story. Their cause in the ears of the elders, they would make confession. This is what happened. This is why I've run. This is why I'm here. At the gate of confession, so it is for you and I, we are brought into a relationship and fellowship with Jesus is restored at the gate of confession. Confession is a gate, you see. As it says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And can I encourage you this morning to call upon the name of the Lord? Folks, how many times... As you're reading through the Gospels, and I encourage you, make this a word study, you know. Do something like this, you know, where you, you go through the Gospels and you look at it. Hey, how many times through the Gospels do we see people running to Jesus? The man of the tombs, what did he do? Ran to Jesus. The people of the cities around the Sea of Galilee, when Jesus got in a boat and went to the other side, what did they do? It says on foot, they all from the cities ran to Jesus. The rich young ruler came running to Jesus. I pray that that would be my epitaph, so to say. Here lies Lorne. <laughs> he was a man that constantly ran to Jesus. Let me ask you, have you run to Jesus? Have you surrendered your life to him? Is he your savior? Is he your Lord? Do you run to Jesus when sin has hindered your relationship with him? When condemnation is hunting you? When trials and troubles are overwhelming you? Can you say this morning, Jesus is my constant refuge? So one, I realize he's my refuge. Two, I run to him because he is my refuge. And finally this morning, number three, I realize, I run, and finally, once there, I reside. I make him my residence. I reside in him who is my refuge. What was this fugitive to do after he had been welcomed into this city? He was to become a resident. He was to stay. He was to abide. He was to reside. It says here in verse 6, he was to do so until when? Until the death of the high priest. And then he would be freed, and then he would be forgiven. And likewise, does it not say there in the book of Hebrews that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens? And who is that? Jesus, the Son of God. A, a high priest who likewise gave his life. Do we have a high priest that gave his life? Yes. Upon the cross of Golgotha, of Calvary, for me, for you, that our sin might be paid for. He paid a debt that I, I could not pay. He paid a debt that he did not owe. <laughs> he made payment for me that, that I might be reconciled, that you might be restored to God, that we might be set free and forgiven. And then a high priest that would say in John chapter 15, what would he say? He would say, abide in me. Jesus is saying to you this morning, he's saying, friend, my child, stay with me. Abide with me. 
Abide in me and I in you. He who abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit for without me you can do nothing. And wasn't that true of this fugitive here? His whole life hinged upon one thing, the life of the high priest. And does your life this morning hinge upon one thing, the life of your high priest who died and lives for you? Now tune in, I want to throw something at you this morning, something to ponder and consider as we try to wrap things up. This fugitive, in order to have refuge, in order to be saved, he had to forsake all, didn't he? At that moment, upon the realization of his own sin, he had to leave family, home, property, and everything in order for there to be salvation and safety he had to run and forsake all and then upon being granted refuge coming into the city he would be given residence and a new life in that city now think about this you read a chapter like this and you think oh he was probably there for a couple weeks do you really think that's true If the high priest was still a spring chicken, he could have been there for years. Decades. As high priests would serve until their death. So let's say just a minimum of 10 years, 15 years. Folks, that's a new life is what that is. As he takes up residence in this city, he's given a new life. And I think personally, if this were me, he comes into this city and he takes a sudden interest in one person because his whole life hinges upon one person because he knows when this person dies, he can go home and suddenly he becomes the foremost expert on one person. Who do you think that is? The high priest. How is he? How's he doing? How's his health? (laughs) You know. Where's he at? What's he doing? Is he coming here? Yeah, I heard he was doing well. I, you know, I don't know. Knowing his death would set him free. Knowing the death of the high priest would set me free. I would listen and look for any news about him. You know, that's my prayer for you and I, that we would become the foremost experts on he upon whom our lives are hinged upon. And you know, I think the same is true of my life, your life, our lives. When Jesus becomes our refuge, and he is our refuge, we take a sudden newfound interest in him, don't we? Or at least we should. Our relationship with him grows. In him we become a new creation, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. In Christ we are a new creation. Behold, all things have passed away, all things have become new, and we experience and enjoy that liberty And that freedom and that forgiveness through his death and through his resurrection. Now, one last thing before we go our way. What does Paul say to the Colossians? He says that things like this, Joshua chapter 20, these cities of refuge and other places in the Old Testament, he says, they are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. And so this morning, I confess to you, this is just a shadow. But I share it with you in the hopes that you are feasting on the substance that is found in Jesus Christ. My hope and prayer this morning is to point you forward that Joshua chapter 20, it's just a telescope. It's just the Hubble. <laughs> and you're looking through it. And when you, you know, glance through the lens, you see one person and one person only, and that's your Savior, Jesus Christ. In him is the substance. Guys, folks, if you leave this morning with anything, then leave with this. The real refuge, the greater refuge, is Jesus Christ. That if you're looking for and longing for some substance, then he's the real deal. The real deal. He's a greater refuge because he's more than a city. He's a savior. He's a greater high priest because he not only gave his life on Calvary's tree, but he rose from the dead. And now he's alive to help us live in the forgiveness and the freedom He's purchased for us. You see, this fugitive here, when he left the city, yes, he was exonerated and liberated, but if that family still held a grudge, they could come after him because the priest was dead. But you and I have a living priest 
who can enforce You see, no, that's my child. So when the railing accusations of the enemy come against us, we have an intercessor at the right hand of the Father, right? A priest who ever lives to make intercession for us and says, no, that's my child, Dave. And you will not bring an accusation against him. And that is why Jesus is the substance and this is the shadow. This whole scene makes me think of John chapter 8, where it says, Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you are free indeed. Let me ask you this morning, are you a son or a slave? Maybe you're a son that's living like a slave. If so, all I have to say is run to him, cry out to him, confess to him. And as you abide in him, and as you look at him, and as you learn of him, and as you listen to him, as you see him, I pray this morning that you have, I pray that as you see him, you become like him. I used to think that I had to be like him. And I'd wake up each morning and, and I'd strive and I'd sweat and I'd work and I'm going to be like Jesus this morning in my own strength. I would try that. And it wouldn't take long for me within five minutes to stop being like Jesus as I'd trip over the dog. Stupid dog, you know. And God whispered to my heart, he said, Lord, you... You're never going to be like me in your own strength and in your own energy and your own effort. He said, Lord, will you just love me? Will you just live with me? Will you just be like your son? Hang out with me. And you'll start becoming like me. You'll, I'll start to rub off on you, so to say. Our lives are transformed and conformed into his image when we gaze upon him. And here's the beauty. Here's the beauty. Seeing Jesus, whether it's here is our refuge or someplace else in the Old Testament or New Testament, seeing him takes care of the practical. What do I mean? Remember, John says, seeing him purifies my life. And maybe you came this morning thinking, my marriage is in trouble. My job's in trouble. My family's in trouble. And Lord, what I really needed is some practical application from God's word. I needed five steps for fixing my marriage or my family, or my job, or whatever it is. But I suggest to you that seeing Jesus takes care of those things. Because when you see him, you become like him. And when a husband becomes like Jesus, does that not make his marriage better? Does that not bless his wife? And likewise, the same for the wife to the husband. When as parents we become like our Lord, does that not make us better parents? Does that not bless our kids? Does it not bless my work? Does it not bless my ministry when I'm not trying to implement five steps? But one, one step. I'm going to keep looking at Jesus. I know that as I look at him, I'll become like him. And that is going to infuse itself into every aspect of my life. Like Moses, when he came down from the mountain, out from the tabernacle or from Sinai, remember when he would spend time in the presence of God, his face would glow. And remember he'd put the veil over his face because people couldn't look upon him, you know. His face would be so glowing and showing that he had been in God's presence, looking and listening. And you know, the same holds true. Moses had just been in the Lord's presence, and it transformed him. Everybody knew it. And I pray we spend so much time gazing upon our Savior Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, in our own devotions, that we continually and always have, no pun intended, a suntan, S-O-N, tan, you see. My friends, may these cities of refuge point you forward and further. May they show you that there's substance in Christ. May they point you to he who is the real refuge. May we realize that this morning. Realize that Jesus is your refuge. Not not me, not my words, not my wisdom or a brother or a sister, not this ministry. Everything here and in our lives We should be the runners on the road is who we should be. And Kevin was talking about missional living. Missional living is being a runner on the road. And when you find fugitives running, you say refuge, refuge, and refuge. But you know what it means? It means you got to get out on the road. And the road's out there. And the road's out there. It's all around us. Get out on the road. Be a runner that points people to the refuge that is Jesus Christ. Help them realize that. Run to him. Reside in him. Oh, see him 
and be like him. Amen. Let's stand. Father, thank you for your word this morning. And I thank you for the patience of your saints. And God, I thank you for the privilege, the absolutely humbling privilege of enjoying your word with them. God, I hope and pray that your word has gone out in power. It has gone out accurately. It has gone out clearly. It has gone out applicably. It has gone out presently. It has gone out personally. I pray each and every person here this morning, including myself, we can all say, God, you spoke to me. And God, you revealed to me who is most important, and that is my Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for with resounding voice you reminded us this morning in these cities that we have a refuge. Thank you for helping us realize that Jesus, you are our refuge. And maybe we've been running from God. Maybe we've been running to other things thinking that they would fix our problems. When in reality, we need to run to Jesus. Whether believer or not this morning, believers, we need to run to Jesus. He is our refuge. Let us not forget that. But if you are here this morning and you have been running from God, and you know God has been running after you, and the Spirit has been placing that, just that loving conviction upon your heart that God wants you, He wants you to be His own, that He's died on the cross for you, that He's risen from the dead for you, that He is at the right hand of the Father for you, making intercession for you. He is crying out to you this morning, saying, find refuge in me. Will you run to Jesus this morning? Will you give your life to Christ this morning? Will you call out upon His name and say, Jesus, be my Savior, be my Lord, come into my life. I confess my sin. I confess my sin has brought death and only in you is there freedom and forgiveness. Only in you is there new life. Only in you can you change my life. I pray that if there be anyone here this morning that you would do business with God and give your life to Christ and when all is said and done, you would come forward and you would tell one of the elders, yes, I gave my life to Christ this morning so we can pray for you, so we can get you plugged in, so we can disciple you, so we can raise you up in the family of God. Not, you're not becoming a member of the church. You're becoming a member of the family of God. And believers this morning, all I can do is encourage you to, to realize and to run and to reside in He who is your Savior. Do not forget that the real substance is in Him. And I may never stand in this pulpit again. Who knows what the will of God is? We'll leave that up to Him. But if I never stand here again, I leave you with one thing. My friends, may none of us ever stop desiring to see our Savior. So Lord, will you bless these precious people? May you keep them. May you make your face to shine upon them. Be gracious to them. Lift up your countenance and give them peace. In the wonderful name of Jesus, and everyone said, Amen.